0: Buddhist Geeks, Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 304, Zen Predator. We're joined this week by New York Times columnist Mark Oppenheimer to discuss his recent book, The Zen Predator of the Upper East Side, and the decades of sexual scandal surrounding Japanese Zen teacher Edo Shimano. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today with our special guest, Mark Oppenheimer. Mark, awesome to have you on the show and uh, thanks for taking time. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, you've written a really awesome, I guess it's being called uh, a Kindle single. So it's it's like a book, but it's also like a
1: long article. Uh, yeah, the Kindle has a, uh, Amazon Kindle has a marketplace for stuff that's, you know, between like 10 and 100 pages. So it's shorter than a book, uh, but longer than most magazine articles. Uh, sort of novella length and they're they're priced uh they're priced to sell and um they are a bit shorter and they're called singles. so this is like you know uh, it's 55 pages so it's like a long magazine article it's what it is
0: nice and the the title is uh the zen predator of the upper east side the zen Um, predator of the upper east side which is a great title and and i'd say even better is the the cover art for this thing if you can see it here in the video uh, it's a Zen Enso with a little red uh, snake wrapped around it, so highly provocative, um, <laughs> and we're, we're going to get into the content of that. I want to mention, too, um, you're, you're most well-known, I think, for your uh, biweekly column on The New York Times where you explore all kinds of stuff related to uh, religion, primarily in America or, or global? Yeah,
1: primarily in America. I have done pieces from um, England. I think I might have done a piece from Canada once. But, um Yeah, it's for the national section, so it's primarily all over America, all different religions, all over America. Mm -hmm. Uh, If people have good story ideas, drop me a line. Uh, It's called Beliefs, and you can go to if you go to the Times and search, enter keyword Beliefs, you'll pull up all my columns. And it's really whatever uh, is intriguing or interesting about religion, not necessarily uh, current events, not something that happened yesterday, but some quirky little corner of American religion. This ebook, in fact, got its start as a Beliefs column uh, in 2010. Yep. you know, about Edo Shimano being forced out of the Zen Study Society in New York City. And then it just it grew from there because more stuff kept coming out and people kept calling me and, give, and feeding me information. People really wanted the story to get out there. Uh, his sangha um, was really divided and a lot of people really decided it was time to break this out into the open. So it started as a short column, but then it clearly grew beyond that pretty quickly.
0: And and I, from what I remember, that column was pretty instrumental in in causing some actual uh, structural shifts in that organization. So in some sense, it sort of broke open um, this whole issue. I
1: think that's right. I mean, when my column ran, he was going to be on a kind of phased retirement, and he was going to be out like within a year, and uh, and Roko Sherry Chayat was going to take over as the abbot um, on a sort of graduated, slow schedule. And I think the idea was that he would have a year in which he would be feted at lots of, there'd be lots of nice dinners and sangha gatherings, and he would be given a kind of dignified retirement. And after my article ran, it sped up pretty quickly, and people people realized uh, that it was not appropriate, given that he was being forced out for being a kind of unrepentant harasser, groper, uh, and some would say abuser of women. It was not appropriate to treat him to treat this as a kind of uh, the retirement of an honored, uh, you know, uh, leader it, that, that he really had to move and, and that he had to move out quickly that the longer he stuck around, the more members they would lose. So things sped up to the point where I think my piece ran in August and I think he was supposedly formally gone by December and now is not supposed to be, uh, on ZSS property without, um, without a chaperone or something like that.
0: Okay. Okay. I'm curious, you know, you, since you know, you're in this business of writing about religion, and sometimes your articles, no doubt, have real-world ramifications right. for those communities, how do you kind of uh, respond to situations like this you know, where, where it actually has these big kind of impacts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I don't set out to have impact, right? I mean, I set out to tell a story honestly and, and thoughtfully and fairly. It would be mistaken to decide, okay, h- how can I write this to have the most impact or to force real-world change? Um, of course it is the case that everything we do in this world, including writing articles in the New York times, but not limited to that right, has real world impact, right? Like some, something will change in the world because of this live webcast that you and I are doing, right? You know, somebody will ignore his daughter for five minutes and, you know, uh, as a three year old, she'll remember and hold it over to him tonight, at bedtime, <laughs> um, and say, daddy, you were supposed to like read me, uh, you know, so everything has effects and, um, I've I've gotten used to that. I think that it it requires that I try even harder to be fair. When I used to work for an alt weekly, I used to to be the editor of the New Haven Advocate, which was the alternative weekly in New Haven. You know, sort of the Village Voice, SF Weekly, you know, style paper, um, LA Weekly, The Stranger in Seattle, all those kind of scrappy, newsprinty alt weeklies. You know, there we were out to be kind of scurrilous and rascally, and now I. But, you know, people treated us as like the the disobedient child in the corner, the redheaded stepchild who's always acting out. When you're writing for a place like this, people take everything I say almost too seriously. And I have to be doubly scrupulous because, yeah, I mean, people lose jobs. There was one case where I'm I'm pretty certain that I destroyed a – a Christian intentional community, a kind of commune. Through my journalism, we could talk about that if you're curious. But it, it's it's pretty heavy sometimes.
0: Yeah. Well, I do I do want to explore some of the parallels. Uh, you know, when we get into the details between um, what you're reporting on here with Edo uh, Shimano and also with sort of the Christian uh, tradition. Sure. Um, but first, I, I wondered for those people who aren't so familiar with. The details of this case, you know, the details of the situation, and mm-hmm. and I have to admit, I I, I was among uh, those people until I, I read your bite-sized morsel of uh, yeah. uh, reporting goodness, and mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's pretty startling in a way that this uh, now it, what, is he an eighty-three-year-old
1: yeah I think it, he's eighty-three you know? now yeah
0: yeah that and 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 he's you know young compared to <laughs> Joshu Sasaki Roshi who um you know one hundred and six <laughs> right right so. We've got these kind of first-generation Japanese Zen teachers who migrated to the United States in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s even. And it's pretty startling, like the kinds of stuff that you're reporting on um, having happened not just once or twice or three times, but like repeatedly for decades. Um, I wonder if you could share a bit of of the story and the details. Sure.
1: Yeah, uh, let me give you the two-minute version. And one of, I mean, just to your point there that, you know, of the, um, I mean, one person I quote in the book, a longtime uh, monk, um, you know, said to me, of the four most important teachers to come over in the 1960s from Japan uh, in the Japanese Zen tradition, uh, three of them themselves caused major sex scandals, and the fourth, uh, his successor, did. Um, yep. his, his successor being Richard, you know, Richard Baker Roshi in San Francisco. So, um, and you know, the, the the number I've arrived at is probably out of the three or four dozen most. Populated and important and influential uh, Zen centers in the United States, uh, a quarter of those easily have been touched by um, sexual misdeeds uh, on the part of a major uh, of a major teacher at those centers. So, you know, percentage wise, like it's a small sample size, but percentage wise, it's really really bad it's for huge. for Japanese Zen in America, and not so much better for you know other Buddhist strains necessarily. Um, the the two minute version is that. Robert Aitken, uh, the great um, Hawaii uh, Roshi, was a prisoner of war in Japan in the 1940s. He came back. He, he learned about Zen from his Japanese captors. He came back to Hawaii, started what eventually became the Diamond Sangha. Uh, and then you know, 15 years later, early 1960s, he wants to bring over some Japanese monks for more, more teaching, more learning. Somebody recommends Edo Shimano shimano uh comes he takes some classes at the university of hawaii he sits with people does zazen and pretty quickly begins sleeping with women and there's strong reason to believe that two women he slept with ended up having mental breakdowns uh their doctor interestingly was linus pauling jr the son of the nobel prize winning chemist linus pauling which is interesting uh a nobel peace prize winner as well and so pretty quickly bob Egan realizes holy cow i have to get this guy off the island and he he sort of banishes him Uh, Shimano flees pretty quickly. Within a few months, he's in Manhattan. This is New Year's Eve, 1964. And here's the the crux, right? Like, here's where we get to, in a sense, the the fulcrum of the story only three years in, which is that Aiken, at that point, could have told people this guy is not to be trusted. He's really, really sleazy. And instead, and we have notes that I've seen that Aiken writes, you know, something to the effect of like, we can't let people know because they'll hold it against Zen. Buddhism, and it will harm the practice of Zen, the, it will harm the spread of, of the Dharma. And um, so he, he covers it up. I mean, he figures, okay, it's New York City's problem now. Shimano gets to New York City. He pretty quickly is handed the keys to the Zen Study Society, which D.T. Suzuki had founded, but Suzuki was back in Japan. And all of a sudden, he has like the number one Zen center in New York, which was, had almost nobody sitting. But then he, he's very charismatic. He quickly finds donors. He's given a lot of money. He buys a beautiful townhouse on the Upper East Side. In the early 1970s, he builds Daibosatsu, which is his, you know, from scratch, he built this large monastery in the Catskills. And meanwhile, you know, he continues taking students and just serially uh, sleeping with them. Uh, Some are willing participants and would say that they were not harmed by the experience and maybe even uh, helped Uh, although I didn't meet any who said they were helped. But I met some who said, oh, it wasn't so terrible. All the way, you know, the best case scenario is not so terrible. All the way to uh, being hit on by him or groped by him or pressured for sex by him completely destroyed um, my Zen practice and also harmed my ability to feel close to people ever since.
0: Um, And and how many people did you end up um, speaking with? I spoke to about a
1: dozen who had had who had had unpleasant sexual encounters with him, everything from highly coerced intercourse or oral sex to just they'd been groped or grabbed to you know verbal pressure that they resisted. Um, but that's like a dozen whom I found without digging too hard who were willing to talk to me or at least whom I managed to get on the phone. Okay, so when people have estimated for me that there were many dozens more since we're talking about like a 50-year period, That to me sounds very reasonable. Like for legal reasons, I'm not I'm not going to name a number, but you're talking. I mean, I know one person who said it's got to be 200. Well, you know, I don't know, but I do know there are whole episodes where people left the sangha and said, "I'm sick of this." Like he's just he just can't keep it in his pants, and presumably this was after three or four women had you know come forward, and I don't even know who those three or four women are. So like there's various moments were like, that must have been four or five women. That must have been four or five women. Must, and we don't even know who they all are. So um, it's, it was really an extraordinary, you know, and he would, and I'll just, you know, just to wrap up, like, that's basically the story. It finally all comes crashing down in 2010, uh, when his board finally uh, takes action and subsequent boards had sort of promised to force him out. But every time he would kind of talk them down off the ledge, and and he would stay and he would make these promises. And the promises would be things like, Well, I'll stop all the way, or they would be things like, Well, I mean, he once promised Dennis Kelly that it was, you know, a Roshi in, in mm-hmm. Minnesota, I think now, right? He once promised Jinpo, he said, uh, I'll only sleep with Japanese women because they don't uh, they don't tell. So sometimes it would be don't sleep with these liberated Western women because they die, they, they they can't keep their mouths shut. So the the level of misogyny. That's going on in and perpetrated by him in the song that really becomes deeply profound, and yet nobody can see a way out because he, they revere him. His board, you know, he has this hand picked board. ZSS is a nonprofit. The people who can fire him are his board members. His board members are all his devoted students. Right. So there's this kind of closed circle of abuse that just can't be broken.
0: Yeah, no, it's, um, I, I mean, and to see, you know, detail after detail uh, kind of highlighting this, it's, it's hard to ignore the, Um, the profoundly dysfunctional nature of that pattern and the way that it caused clearly a ton of harm. I mean, you were talking about whole cadres of people coming into the Zen center and then many of them leaving because of issues surrounding this. And then new ones coming in. I mean, that's new ones coming in and and people,
1: you know, people realizing that they've been there three or four years and all of a sudden they're like senior monks and they're saying, well, why am I senior? Where did, where is (laughs) it? Where's the person with 12 years or 15 years experience sitting with him and they would realize, well, that whole flight of people, that whole cohort left after some scandal or another. I mean, they talked about, it was like well-known terms. Can, can I use blue language on, on this podcast? <laughs> Go for it. Okay, so, so what, you know, they talked about the fuck follies and then there was fuck follies part two. You know, and each one was a way of describing a different episode in the 1970s when, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden it came out that he was sleeping with more than one person. There were, you know, he'd be sleeping with a woman and then with her roommate or, or like, you know, her best friend, or the woman who was sleeping in the room next door to her. or whatever. Meanwhile, keep in mind he's married and nobody knows what his wife, his Japanese wife who lives in the United States with him thinks of all this. Um, and then, you know, the dysfunction forced on some of these women where they feel that if they are, to, you know, one woman said, one woman wrote, I don't want to tell people because then it becomes, if I force, if I, if I stop other women from joining, then it becomes even more of an old boys' club. So there's this cruel paradox where if they speak out, they feel that women will be afraid of joining the Sangha, rightfully so. But then it'll be an all-male sangha, so it'll re-inscribe the patriarchy they're trying to fight against. So essentially, you're supposed to keep your mouth as a woman. You feel I should keep my mouth shut because I want the only way to break down the sexism is to attract more women. But if I talk about what happened to me, I'll scare off the women. So better to keep my mouth shut and hope that they don't have that they'll join. And then I guess not go through what I went through. It's just very disturbing. So so there's that piece.
0: And then the other piece you mentioned, which is um, this sort of fear of talking about it because it'll somehow hurt Japanese Zen, you yeah. know, in America and um, presumably, and, and this gets to the kind of paradox that in some ways is at the heart of these sort of things, which is You know how is it and and i don't think this is true of just zen how is it that these uh you know charismatic uh religious leaders uh who clearly are having some sort of positive impact on their congregations um because otherwise why would people care um if japanese zen was hurt Um, they're clearly getting some benefit from it even though they're either on the direct receiving end of this sort of stuff or they're seeing it um peripherally so that gets really at this paradox of like, what is it that keeps people from talking about this stuff and why is it so perpetually uh, happening in
1: one thing you have about Japanese Zen? And of course, you know, you're part of a movement to kind of decenter the notion of the guru, right? I mean, sure. And one thing about Japanese Zen is it's very guru centered historically. And, you know, the whole idea of Dharma transmission, the whole idea that, you know, you're sitting with Shimano Roshi who sat with uh, i just wrote a book about him and i'm forgetting the name of the guy who gave him dharma transmission but you know uh so and so and nakagawa right so he sat mm-hmm. with so and roshi and so and sat with so and, you know, and so and
0: so and so an actual zen master <laughs> so-and-so,
1: probably so and so so and so roshi so and so and so uh but so is a so and roshi was a real dude and the idea that you're sitting with someone who sat with him who sat with him who sat with him very very important in in um in Zen Buddhism and in Japanese Zen. And so people, you know, the choice that a lot of people felt that they were facing was either sweep this under the rug, pretend it didn't happen or just minimize it, or lose my practice, right? Like there was not a strong sense that you could go to someone else for a strong practice. Now, in part, this is because, they did revere him as a teacher, and a lot of people felt they'd grown tremendously in their practice with him. In part, it's because this was their Sangha, right? This was their community of people whom they had attached to. In many cases, they'd given up a lot, you know people who had made career choices so as to have to free up money and time to you know do zazen with uh, this Sangha often, you know, to do sessions, um, to to go away for ninety days, three years, whatever. And, you know, in one case, one woman who left her child for months on end, I mean, our young daughter, it's just like really, so once you're in that deep, the idea that you would then tear down the teacher who brought you there, um, and what, lo- you know, then it's all for naught. And then you've lost your practice. And it's, what is interesting to me is, you know, Roman Catholics don't tend to think, well, if I lose Father Joe, I'll lose my Catholic practice. Yes. And Jews tend not to think if we lose, you know, Rabbi Shmuel, then— you know, I'll lose my Jewish practice. But a lot of these people felt that Shimano Roshi was basically was their practice and that without him, yes. they'd, lose, they'd lose Buddhism. Okay.
0: Yes. Yeah, so and that goes to the heart of the, the guru student model, you know, where the the teacher really is in some sense a pivotal part right. of the training. That's right. Um, Okay, and and we've we've explored that kind of ad nauseum in a way on the show, and it, it seems like and what's really interesting, <clears throat> um, you know, you mentioned in, in your interview with Robert Wright um, talking about the book that, um, you know, also you've heard a lot of Tibetan Buddhist communities talking about how there's a similar kind of situation going on there, and what's interesting is the um, the kind of strain or school of uh, practice that I've spent the most time in immersed in is the uh, insight meditation tradition, which comes out of Southeast Asia and the Theravada Buddhist tradition. And, and it's largely, I was just thinking about this. I've only literally heard over the last decade plus of one rumor of someone sleeping with the student in a way oh, that was um, unethical and caused problems in the community. And that's of hundreds of teachers. So I was thinking about how, how is it that this strand is different? And one of the main differences is that there were no uh, old school Asian teachers who were part of founding those communities. They were founded by young Westerners um, who ended up in, instituting a lot of different kinds of safeguards right. um, against stuff like this. Oh, I,
1: I think that's right. And I mean, Zen has a particular um, history, you know, so, so Tibetan Buddhism largely came into the United States, right. In a different path altogether, a third path altogether, right. Which is the, the you know, Dalai Lama worship coming through like Richard Gere and the Beastie Boys. Right. <laughs> so you know, and to some extent, Robert Thurman and people like that, and, you know, so that's another path, right? Zen has a particular history, which is, um, it has been imported by highly revered Japanese born guru types who then begin to create a clerical class for lack of a better word, or a teacher class, uh, of native American teachers. But, you know, you had these Japanese teachers coming. A lot of them came in the 1960s at the height of the sexual revolution, at the height of a kind of um, credulity or naivete about the perfectionism or the hyper-spirituality of Eastern religion, right? A sense that, like, Easterners can do no wrong. Like, the while we're bombing, you know, Southeast Asia, the Southeast Asians are just people of peace, and they're bringing us... You know these peaceful traditions. So there was just a kind of naivete and a kind of willing suspension of disbelief about um, about East Asian and Southeast Asian spirituality at the moment that Japanese Zen teachers are coming over and setting up these communities. So you know, women in particular sure. and men would go to these communities because they felt damaged by Judeo Christianity because they had sexual abuse in their past, and they would think, you know, who can heal me? A Zen teacher can heal me. So and and they would put themselves in this incredibly vulnerable place. Now, you know, were people like Shimano Roshi deliberately taking advantage of that kind of vulnerability? I mean, that's a, a separate question, but it, it is a particular, a history peculiar to how Zen came to this country that is not shared by, say, the inside tradition or the Tibetan tradition.
0: And and whether it was deliberate or not, I mean, it is, it is what
1: happened. It is what happened, and, it, and um, you know, it's also the fact that there's no hierarchy. Um, now, in some communities, you know, people will say, well, in the Catholic Church, hierarchy was a problem because they, uh, it was the hierarchy that moved priests from, one, priests from one parish to another and kept it quiet. But then there are people in the Zen tradition saying, well, the problem is there is no hierarchy. So whom do you complain to? Right. I mean, if you're if you're Western oriented, if you're from the inside tradition, if you're the inside meditation center, right, and you have a board the, the sense of a board of directors and fiduciary responsibility is very Western. Right? Yep. And yep. they take it really seriously. But yeah, I don't know how seriously the board of directors of you know the Zed Study Society. I mean, Shimano was on it, so was his wife. His wife was the treasurer for a while. I mean, there's all these conflicts of interest that just they just don't care about. Uh, because that's not what they're about. They're about creating a space in which Shimano Roshi can teach. It's a whole different mentality.
0: Yeah, I, I can see that. And I think the the hierarchy thing is interesting because um clearly uh, the Zen teaching and the kind of uh, you know what you're aiming for is a sort of some sort of recognition that is beyond sort of this and that and upper and lower and all of that. So that, that I think that's what you mean by by a lack of hierarchy. But clearly, there's a hierarchy within the organization. I mean, there's the... Right, I
1: just meant a sort of organizational hierarchy. Right, right. That, um, you know, at least if you're more Western-oriented in your organization, uh, you probably have people running the finances who aren't the wife of the head teacher. Right, right. I mean, uh, you know, to to the credit of, I think, most uh, Buddhist centers, uh, but not as true in uh, the Zen Studies Society in New York
0: yeah i mean you know since all of these scandals have been kind of coming to light uh again in a way because what's interesting is they've been coming to light you know in the last few years i've just seen one after another especially from the zen tradition and in each case like most of the people were repeated you know abusers or predators um you went even so far to say that that shimano is a sociopath and
1: right i wonder yeah what what you're Someone else asked me on. about that word, and I think you know maybe I shouldn't have used it. Um, I mean, there's a there's a very rich debate in uh, in psychology and neuropsychology and uh, about whether such a thing exists. I think the concept, and I, I should say I'm not schooled on the concept. I remember learning a lot about it from Dave Cullen's book on Columbine, because I think it's his argument that one of the Columbine shooters is quote a sociopath, and then there are people who took him to task saying that's actually. You know, that's a, a narrative construct. There's no actual medical evidence that some people are sociopaths. The idea is that some people don't really have a sense of that a sociopath would be someone without a sense of right and wrong. Um, and therefore, I think without a conscience. So, you know, most of us when we do wrong, even if we do it again and again and again and we can't help ourselves, we understand what it is that's wrong about it, and some part of our conscience is pricked, right? Like we, you know, we, we have reckonings even if we silence them and push them aside. And I think the idea about a sociopath is that you know, like Hannibal Lecter, whose pulse doesn't go up when he chews off a person's face, right? It's, he's totally chill about it because he just has no sense that he's doing anything wrong in Silence of the Lambs. So, um, you know, I don't think Shimon Roshi has chewed off anyone's face. I suspect his pulse would go up if he did. Um, I think that um, what I, I shouldn't have used a clinical term, you know, what I should have said is he seems to have created a, a personal narrative whereby um, this isn't a problem, Like serial womanizing is just not a problem. Um, It's, you know, does he, he told me that he thinks in some cases, sex with your teacher could be helpful and help you on your path to enlightenment. So he's obviously told himself, I think that some percentage of the women fall into that category where he's helped them. Um, His typical habit when it turned out badly and a woman was very, very distraught was that she was mentally ill or she was disturbed. All of his accusers—it's sort of their problem. In one case, he told me that one man who accused him of all sorts of malfeasance—well, uh, his problem was that he was a homosexual. He said that to me.
0: <laughs> so, so you, yeah. So he's pretty old, this old, school. old school stuff. He's yeah. pretty
1: old school guy. Yeah. Uh, he keeps it very old school, feudalist, uh, samurai era, real. Um, so, you know, it's just about—I probably shouldn't have used a clinical term—but um, I do think that he has a personal psychology in which. He's doing good some of the time, not so much harm a lot of the time, and basically he is who he is. And if people have a problem with it, that's their problem. So he's kind of walled off any sense of culpability for the people uh, whom he hurts.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. When, when you say walled off and you talk about the kind of feudalist mentality, I mean, in some ways, when I look at the situation and, and similar ones to it, it's like we've got these old school, some some of them actually Grew up in feudal Japan, right? You know, Sasaki right. Roshi. I mean, I, I right. can't even imagine, you know, the early 1900s.
1: Right. Like the emperor was actually divine for him, or for right his, in his era, right?
0: Right, and and I mean, I know a lot of um, kind of the the situation is us sort of taking, you know, 21st century uh, Western ethics and sort of so, sort of in, in looking at their behaviors through that lens, which is appropriate because that's where they live, right? And yet. And yet uh, one of the things I notice that's a little strange is that oftentimes it, it seems like we sort of assume that just because they're here that somehow they're going – you know, somehow um, they're going to understand like the basis for those absorb,
1: They'll absorb Western ethics. I mean, right. So – and there's all sorts of reasons they wouldn't. I mean, for one thing, when they were brought here in the 60s or when they came here, people were telling them, Americans were telling them left and right, thank God you've arrived because we've lost all sense of morality as a society. We're involved in war in Japan. We, you know, Judeo-Christianity is morally bankrupt. Like, you're here to teach, to, rein, to, to like bring us, you know, ethical behavior and honor. And so they were told, like, thank God for you, right? So that's number one is they, their, their initial experience, which carried on for a couple decades anyway, was of being told like they were going to save the corrupt West with their more profound spirituality. So that's number one. Number two, like all revered people, they, they end up living in a cocoon where the people who they interact with day in and day out are their most loyal, uh, students, the ones who've risen up to be vice abbot or whatever, you know, maybe a spouse, uh, the long-term resident monks at, at the monastery or wherever, um, you, you know, the, the people who are immediately disenchanted just leave, right? Like if you or I stepped into Zen Study Society and heard some of the whispers about what was going on, and if presumably we're ethical people and we think that sounds shady, we just say, well, I'm going to, you know, we show up twice and then we leave <laughs> and we just, it wouldn't be our problem. So the people who stick around and end up becoming close enough that they have his ear are also likely to be the people who um, tell him what he wants to hear and who are very, very deeply loyal.
0: And, and when you talk about a cocoon, you know, um, in some sense, uh, a cocoon can, can be, you know, from a practitioner's point of view, can be a really positive thing yeah, because isn't... you've got this very strong container in which to kind of focus, right. single-pointedly focus on a particular you know, developmental task. And yet, within that cocoon, if it's a Japanese medieval, you know, uh, whatever, you know, yeah. what else is uh, permissible there? No, I mean, there?
1: it would be really interesting to do some sort of comparative work and say, like, how do the ethics of, you know, cloistered Catholic monks and nuns develop, right, when, you're, when you have this radically disengaged, you know, from, when your spirituality is so radically disengaged from the outer world? Mm. Um, you know, how do you maintain some sort of ethical grounding? Uh, and I, it seems to have worked very, very badly. <laughs> I guess. Yes. I guess the answer is, you know, for him, you don't, you have, to, if, if you're going to be isolated in that cocoon, right, then, I mean, part of the problem too is in America, you know, as someone pointed out to me, in, 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 and I quote him in this piece, you have this class of practitioners who are neither lifetime, devil, they're not professional monks, like in Japan, nor are they one-time students who come for the weekend, right? They're sort of like, Serious amateurs. They're in, they're out, they do a few months, but then they have to go back to practice law for a while or attend to their family, but then they yep. do a session. But then, right? What do you, how responsible is that class of people, Vincent, for taking care of themselves in a sort of cocoon like setting where all the rest of society seems to fall away, right? I mean, if they end up sleeping with the Roshi, it's an interesting question what they can be expected to know or not know yeah because on the one hand you can say well they're constantly in contact with you know society like they know the norms on the other hand they've dipped out for 3 months specifically to cocoon themselves in a different set of norms yes now in japan they didn't have that class of people that's a like american 60s invention is the sort of like like just spiritually seeking on the go all the time buddhist yep and it's new and we haven't figured out like what how to ethically contain that person, or how to ethically help and support that person? I think.
0: <laughs> um, you know, I found it. I found it interesting too. You 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 talked a little bit about the parallels um, that you've seen in the fundamental uh, fundamentalist Christian uh, communities, and especially around experiences of conversion. Right. Uh, and I was curious, yeah, if you could say a little bit about that sort of parallel. Um, because, you know, here are all these people leaving Ju- Judeo-Christian roots and basically right. going into a, a kind of similar situation, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, again, I I want to be so clear and talk about Japanese Zen here because I think it's not this way. I mean, if you go into like Tibetan Buddhism, I think you're basically going into, you know, a kind of old school Roman Catholicism where you have a pope and the pope is the Dalai Lama in a sense. Um, it's even that, it's
0: even more feudal, uh, uh, arguably, than Japanese Zen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, interesting. Um, but I'll, you know, I'll restrict myself to Japanese Zen, right? Sure. In America, um, yeah. There, you, you. I think it's. I think the comparison I drew was that, like the evangelical who is converted not by sort of a process of discernment, but like in an ecstatic revival tent, right? Like the people yes. who just they show up at a camp meeting, they fall, and when the when the minister says like. Are you ready to give yourself over to Christ? The music is playing. The people all around you are sort of putting their arms on you and hugging you. And its tears are flowing. People are confessing their sins. You've, you've been drinking too much. Your wife just left you. You're in a broken place. And you just decide I'm going to fall to my knees. You run up to the altar, fall to your knees, spread your arms. You ask to be baptized, right? You come in this ecstatic moment. And that ecstasy holds you for a while. And then maybe over a year or two or three, you begin to apply some reason and you begin to look, you know, have a little more discernment about the community you've chosen. And maybe you decide, well, this ain't for me. And the next time you're in a camp meeting or a revival tent or just a revival in a church building, it doesn't do anything for you. And you realize, wow, three years ago, this like, it seemed like Jesus was in the room and now I've kind of lost it. I I guess the analogy I was drawing is like for a lot of people, that first encounter with someone like Shimano Roshi or that first weekend retreat is totally transformative. It's like, at last, this thing they didn't even know they were looking for. And then the disenchantment comes and they look at him and say, I can't believe I ever fell for that guy. And so much of it, I guess, just has to do with where you are in your life at the moment you find that minister, that reverend, that priest, that Roshi.
0: And it, it's so interesting, too, because, you know, from the, from the insider practitioner perspective, um, and I know you're writing this from from an outsider perspective, which gives you a unique, you know, vantage. Right. Um, you know, the, all of the models that I'm familiar with uh, also talk about disenchantment as part of the spiritual process. So yes. they have their own models uh, to explain and also to, to figure out how to remedy those disenchanted uh, things. But it, but it complicates things because there may, you know, I think the argument can be made, there may be some legitimate truth to those claims. Um, right. But they only make sense when you're in the cocoon. Right.
1: Well, what's so interesting about you're telling me that certain paths see disenchantment as part of the process yes. is it speaks particularly badly then of what happened with Shimano students where the disenchantment frequently led to like extraordinary mental anguish and separation from the Sangha. Right. Like, it, mm-hmm. you know, it, it seemed rarely to help people along their path or to sort of enrich their, their, their journey. And uh, it, it seemed to always be just a, like a profoundly disruptive thing, with without any redeeming uh, side to it. So that's really, I think, speaks very badly to his to his teaching.
0: Um, yeah, I, I I would have to agree with that, and I don't I don't think that point is really uh, a defense against that kind of behavior because there I think there are plenty of examples of communities where people go through periods of disillusionment that are kind of important parts of kind of letting go of certain ideas, even ideals about what the teacher is, you know, and, and, and like perfection ideals, right. for instance.
1: I mean, look, I just, I just wrote a poem about John Yoder, who is a famous Mennonite. He's the most famous American Mennonite ever, and probably the most important American pacifist theologian ever. And it turns out that he was really sleazy when it came to women. I mean, really hmm. um, Shimano-like in his predations. And he had a very weird theology about why it was okay to sleep naked. Like Gandhi, by the way, he thought it was okay to sleep naked with women you weren't married to to test your own resolve, so long as you didn't have intercourse with them. It's really, like creepy, weird stuff. Um, but Yoder, this is only coming out. Not it's not only coming out now, but they're really he died. I don't know, ten years ago, uh, fifteen years ago, and the, the American Mennonite community is really reckoning with it right now. And part of the reason it was so hard for them to is because. He was—he was, in a sense, their pope. I mean, he's the greatest American Mennonite, and the one who helped think through their opposition to war, which is so central to their identity. And they're going through a process of maturity of realizing this man was not a saint. Like what you were talking about, where there's a kind of growth that has to happen, where you give up this idealization of of the teacher, or of the path, or whatever, and you realize it's it's in this world and it's flawed and it's difficult and it's hard and it's not perfect. And the Mennonites are—they kind of thought Yoder was perfect, Mm. and then they realize he's like the least perfect guy there is. And so there's a real kind of maturation as a community that comes with that sort of reckoning.
0: Nice, nice. No, I think that's a great point. And um, I I know your intention isn't to have an impact on the world, but I think um, you know when you're writing about this stuff for the people that are um, familiar with those communities or practicing in Zen, I mean, it—I think it helps
1: catalyze that kind of reckoning. I mean, that, I I don't see how it couldn't. Yeah. I mean, well, one hopes, right? <laughs> I'm not sure to, I mean, the Zen study society just as a coda, I should say is like caught up in a bad lawsuit and counter lawsuit with Shimano. He's suing because he wants his pension of all things. He wants, he wants them to keep paying him. He hasn't moved out of the apartment that they bought for him in the 1970s. So um, it's, it's gotten pretty ugly. And the, from what I hear The society has fallen on hard times financially. A lot of the wealthiest students actually have followed him out. Um, There's a community particularly of men, middle-aged men, who really embrace him still, and some women, um, and are supporting him and have yanked their money from ZSS. A lot of this is hearsay and rumor. A lot of people won't talk on the record. The lawsuit is supposedly going to arbitration soon, hopefully it'll never end up in court. But... um, it's, you know, that particular community, uh, this has been very disruptive to, and hopefully they'll heal, but it's, it's going to be a process.
0: Mm. Cool. Thanks, Mark, for um, yeah, taking the time to explore this with, uh, with the Buddhist geeks. And uh, for everyone who's interested in, in checking more, uh, more out, you definitely would recommend the Zen Predator of the Upper East Side. And uh, if you're practicing within the Zen tradition in particular, you know, uh, educate yourself well um, yeah. before entering um, these communities where, where, where there's a close circle system going on. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic dharma provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information, And to register, visit slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting Buddhistgeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community, and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.